everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. Today, we're back with Dr. Robert Niemeyer, continuing last week's conversation on the subject of the impact of suicide on the survivors. Here's where we left off. It is interesting that um, other cultures have dealt with this typically better than we have in the United States. The Israeli Defense Force, for example, the IDF, uh, for decades has had a very uh, developed uh, program of bereavement support for survivors, especially of combat-related deaths. But that mm-hmm. has, so uh, group support and so on is routinely offered, uh, you know, that is managed by professionals. Um, and most particularly, the parents of those who, uh, you know, whose young sons and daughters have been uh, lost in action. But that gradually has developed into a whole range of bereavement services for highly specialized groups. So the uh, the spouses, for example, of uh, veterans who had died, or even the fiancés who were not mm-hmm. yet married to the soldiers mm-hmm. who died, um, or to suicide-related losses. or And so it becomes um, something that's highly specialized and then mm-hmm. typically offering groups for those specific communities, they don't confront the struggle that that uh, Morgan or I might have in doing a more heterogeneous mixed group of people who mm-hmm. have lost loved ones um, to rather different causes. So I think there are real advantages to thinking about what are the unique needs of this population I want to work with and how can I convene or provide services unique to their struggle. We were limited in Wisconsin because there is not a large military presence, so we were really only to run one group and did not have the resources to run two separate groups, which would have been more ideal. Well, I think I recall statistics uh, that indicated that that more American service uh, men usually, uh, service Mm -hmm. personnel died. Uh, by suicide in the aftermath of the Vietnam War that died in combat. And that's a, yes. a telling yeah. statistic, if it is correct, um, and it probably mm-hmm. is not far off. Uh, so we do tend to stigmatize and to disenfranchise certain losses, um, and this is surely one of them. The impact of that stigma really would interfere with, with the families getting help, I should think. Absolutely, because they avoid such help seeking out of shame, um, out of fear, frankly, of being blamed uh, for not having saved their child, their partner, their parent. Um, there are a lot of factors that can, can be a part of that. And I speak myself as a, as I guess a survivor. My dad was uh, in the service during the Second World War. Um, 
what that had to do with the malaise that ultimately led him to die by suicide, I can't say. Um, I was 11 years old at the time that he uh, he overdosed on barbiturates as a pharmacist, something that was easy to do, um, mm -hmm. easy at least in the sense of having access to the means. I'm sure it was not easy to do psychologically for him. Um, but in that regard, I, I'm very aware of the processes of exclusion and validation, the silencing of a story that becomes almost untellable. Um, and of course, there, you raised the moral question, I think, earlier. Um, the, the predominant view that suicide is an immoral act has not been eradicated despite um, many efforts across uh, the course of many years by good groups like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to ease that stigma and to regard suicide deaths as a tragic form of loss, um, one among many, rather than uh, seeing it as something that is a, a distinctive breach of morality. So I think we, we have a continuing challenge and a lot of work to do in this area. I'm very glad that you're organizing a program of training like this to address some of those issues. I was just noticing now my internal response and thinking about the breadth of ways clients say they want other people in their lives to respond to them. And in session, obviously, you can do that. However, in regular life, I often find myself paralyzed in how to respond because all those different needs and wishes from clients over the years are swirling around in my head. So what would you suggest to therapists in terms of helping non-survivors or people who are trying to support survivors figure out how to respond to people who are grieving when everybody's needs and wishes are so different? Well, I think that your question is, the, uh, is its own answer in a way, that recognizing the diversity of ways that people want us to respond or want the social world to respond more generally should sensitize us to the the reality that there is no one-size-fits-all answer to that. Um, mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to uh, hand out a script um, that will work for each person seeking support or seeking respectful silence um, around right. an issue. But what we can do as therapists is to try to assess what do you need in relation to this loss now and from whom do you need it? Um, and uh, recognizing that this is a, uh, a circumstance of death that is very difficult for you um, and very difficult for others who know and care about you, um, mm -hmm. what would you need them to understand about what this means for you and about what you need now? Um, let's be specific. You know, who are the people in your life who are most important to you in terms of family and friends? Uh, mm -hmm. Let's talk a little about each of them, and how do you think they're dealing with this hard news? Um, what do you need from them, and what might they need from you? Um, and mm -hmm. just kind of work through that list, because very likely for any given person, um, he or she will have preferred styles for dealing with problems, preferred styles for self-disclosure. They may have more of an inclination toward autonomy, more of an inclination toward social relationship and seeking uh, support. Um, 
but they're also likely to have uh, quite a variable set of responses depending on who we're talking about. So Mm -hmm. the way I talk to um, my wife about my son's death by suicide, fortunately that is hypothetical. That's not a self-disclosure. Just to put you guys on alert, I'm not. Yes, thank you. You terrified me. (laughs) Yes. No, but in, in that hypothetical circumstance, which is not hypothetical for many of the people who we work with, um, mm-hmm. the the kind of implicit rules of engagement for talking to my wife, how do you decide whether to talk at all about this? Um, how do you kind of determine when the pain in the other is too great for you to share your own? Or where you mm-hmm. fear that sharing the struggles in your heart will only overburden uh, the other. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are the pros and cons of having an open discussion about how you're doing on a given day um, versus kind of coping on your own or with the support of others? Um, and so, really having, first of all, uh, talks about talking, the kind of meta communication about what the person needs, even in these intimate relationships, I think can be a, a very helpful beginning. Then to recognize that different things are entailed and when you shift the relational frame and when you talk to your other son or your daughter, um, how is that different? What does he or she need um, that is different than what your spouse would need and want? Um, what would you want from him or her in return? And, and let's enlarge the circle. Uh, what about your parents if they're still living? What about um, right the... Um, the larger family circle, or are there particular friends who you would turn to, and if so, for what? Uh, And who would open the door to those conversations? Would they do so? Would you? So I try to just begin to help people comb through this tangled skein of relationships that can be very knotted, very tangled uh, in the wake of a, a trauma like a suicide death and try to disentangle those knots and to follow each uh, relational line and understand what you need in, in this specific relationship and what does that other need from you. Um, the overall goal, in some sense, is to develop at least um, a field of some people who can stand into the story, who can hear what others cannot, uh, who can be good listeners, um, without jumping in and proffering simplistic solutions to really complicated mm-hmm. existential, psychological, and relational questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to recognize that that's not the only way that people can be supportive. So we need those kind of listeners, but we also mm-hmm. need to have people who provide practical support. Right? I'm devastated by the death of my son, but I still need to get my other you know, young son to school, um, who can help with that transportation thing or making sure the kids get to soccer or um, just helping with basic things like we have a lawn around our house mowing the yard. Um, People can be Mm -hmm. super helpful in very concrete ways. And some of our research suggests that these concrete um, efforts at providing assistance have really disproportionately huge impact that they they speak volumes, even more than words, uh, particularly when others have the 
take the initiative uh, to identify what we probably need and then just offer it to us. Just do mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. as the old Nike mm-hmm. commercial said. Um, so we have sort of those kind of doers who step in and do things. We have the listeners who can, um, you know, sort of take in all of our story and listen to the depths of us uh, without having to make it all better immediately. And then we have kind of respite figures. Um, this is kind of a language used by my friend Ken Doka as well. Um, mm-hmm. Folks who can just, you know, go out and have a coffee with us or watch a movie or go dancing. Um, kind of activity companions. Because mm-hmm. grieving is not a 24-7 experience. It's something that we need to be able to engage, ideally, volitionally, by choice, increasingly across mm-hmm. time, make time to focus on those grief-related separation issues. And we need to be able to take time off from that to re-engage the world, to shift from a loss orientation to kind of a restoration orientation um, in terms of the dual process model of bereavement, focusing on loss at one moment and then changing the channel and focusing on life. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, re-engaging people, relationships, projects. And so having others who can join us in that work gives us respite from our grieving and helps us maintain uh, contact with a larger world that we'll continue to live into. So part of what I would do with uh, people who are bereaved by such loss is to think about their social needs and how that may be quite varied. They may need different things from different people. They're going to invite different mm-hmm. kinds of conversations. Uh, we might think about different conversation starters for opening up some of those relational communications. Practice responses to the hard questions. My son's died by suicide a year or two ago. What do I do when someone says, how many kids do you have? Very innocently. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How, do I, how do I respond to that? Do I just subtract one and give that? response and feeling that as if I'm betraying my dead child, or do I include that child in some way? Um, And if so, how? And what are the implications of doing that? Well, I have two children, one of whom is still living. We're in the middle of an interview with Robert Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. Right. A person can follow that up with a question. What do you mean? Well, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I lost a child two years ago. And just to give what we wish to, uh, to invite conversation if we wish, or not. Right, right. But to help people become more agents and have more choice about those things. So I found in my work that many people I've worked with did not feel that they got what they needed from people's responses and wound up feeling very isolated and angry. It seems like there is a wish for people to magically know what is needed, which I suppose is their attachment stuff getting activated. I think you're, you're touching on several very important things. And um, so I'd, I'd like to come back to this idea that grief therapy in the context of suicide needs to be both attachment informed on the one hand and trauma informed on the other. Mm-hmm. And we can talk more about some of the concrete implications of that as time permits. Um, but let me just say about this issue of uh, folks 
kind of angrily resenting that others don't magically recognize what they need uh, and that that activates their own uh, attachment schemes, uh, whether secure or insecure, um, maybe a sense of perennially being abandoned or not being able to count on others yet strongly mm-hmm. reinforced in such a circumstance. But I, I want to, um, first of all, at a very concrete level, what I was saying before can be rendered almost as a structure for uh, a useful therapeutic interview where you draw maybe four columns down a sheet of paper. And uh, mm-hmm. one of them is headed listeners and another doers and another respite figures. And then I have an X category that is people you want to avoid talking to about mm-hmm. this loss because doing so predictably will make it a heck of a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I literally go through the columns with them and say, okay, who would or could fit under each of these columns? Um, and so we get half a dozen names or so, uh, maybe under each of those. And, and then we talk very practically about, I wonder if this week you could choose what are you feeling the greatest need for? Well, I just I just need to get away from it all. Okay, let's think about a couple of contacts with respite figures. Who would you contact with what kind of invitation? Well, I guess I could con- contact Barbara. Uh, I know she's really into the theater. There's an interesting play opening this uh, this weekend. Sounds great. What if she's unavailable? Who else would you turn to? So we just begin to. Uh, essentially therapeutically think through and then contract for some level of initiative, kind of behavioral activation where the person knows what he or she is looking for and reaches out for it. And it becomes part of the therapeutic homework that they're going to take these difficult steps um, and then report back on that. Mm -hmm. So the larger um, goal here is to take the crisis of the this tragic bereavement and help people review and revise their characteristic and sometimes characteristically unsatisfying ways of addressing their needs for people and meaning mm-hmm. by um, taking action in, okay. in thoughtful, reflective directions and dealing with the strong emotional arousal, of course, that may sometimes prevent that. So we're helping people make sense of their emotion, but also to kind of act um, informed by that um, in the direction of meeting the needs that those emotions imply. So if it's loneliness, mm-hmm. it's one thing. If it's containment, it's another. If it's time off, it's another. That's just brilliant because it it, it there's a multi-purpose uh, mm-hmm. effect in terms of helping the person cope in the present and grow by changing their usual ways of dealing with things like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All growth is in response to the failure of our current system. As long as we are sitting happily and contented in how life is going, we don't bother to grow where things are just fine as they are. But when the world falls apart, then we find new ways of putting ourselves back together. And and that is one of the I think the great and often underappreciated dimensions of uh, bereavement and loss in all forms and tragic loss in particular is that it can help us really review and revise our basic assumptions about who we are, 
whose we are in terms of what relationships matter to us and what our lives are about, the larger issue of purpose and meaning. And unsurprisingly, we find in our research and I find in my clinical practice that in addition to the post-traumatic stress that people may experience in the aftermath of violent death, we also see astonishing and oftentimes inspirational levels of post-traumatic growth, typically in the years rather than in the weeks and months that follow Mm -hmm. um, uh, such tragic losses, um, where people can become far more um, attuned to what has value and meaning for them. They often will develop a sense of greater altruism and compassion for the suffering of others, especially when it matches their own. Uh, They can become more attuned to their spiritual lives, to their personal philosophies. They may begin to reorganize their value systems where maybe material advancement or ambition matters less um, and relationship and ultimate purposes matter more. Um, We find, uh, you know, an increment in personal strength and resilience oftentimes for people. And these are not uncommon outcomes. Uh, In fact, they may hold for 30 to 50 percent of those who suffer uh, tragic reversals in life. So ultimately, I'm very optimistic when I'm working with someone who is dealing with really life-altering losses, uh, especially of a tragic sort. Mm -hmm. I don't imagine that it's an easy road. In fact, I make quite the opposite assumption. But I do believe it's a road that goes somewhere. It's not a dead end. So, in other words... Uh, the the person is never going to get over the loss, but they can get through it. That's well said. I like that idea. You can get through it. It is something you go through. It is not. Um, it's an active process of adaptation. It's not just a state that you endure. Um, endurance is required, um, but like an endurance trial as one prepares to uh, run a marathon or something. Uh, It is a process of adaptation of growing stronger and more capable uh, as one does it. Morgan, are there any more questions you'd like to ask? Anything else you'd like to ask Dr. Niemeyer in the the time we have left? I'm trying to think. Um, Probably a million things. Um, But (laughs) Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I don't work a lot with kids, although I do work a lot with teenagers. Does this generally like look fundamentally different with those populations as opposed to an adult or not not necessarily? Well, I think that the human need for meaning and security is so general that it encompasses um, very young children and, uh, you know, and very uh, mature adults uh, Mm -hmm. and everyone in between. How one instills a kind of sense of meaning and security changes with different developmental uh, periods and all of the needs and resources that those imply. But I think central to most of them is the idea of really winning and earning the person's trust 
um, mm-hmm. providing a kind of safe relational container for a very difficult experience. You know, D.W. Mm-hmm. Winnicott once talked about the construction of a holding environment. Um, now, how one does that may be very different if one is sitting cross-legged uh, on the floor um, playing with figurines with a toddler um, versus uh, sitting around in a, a rap group circle with a group of bereaved adolescents um, providing right. facilitation but not instruction um, as mm-hmm. we allow them to give voice to what is common to their experiences and what's unique about it and basically look to augment the relational resources in the room as they exchange experiences Mm -hmm. Um, versus working with uh, an individual adult um, or a couple or a family um, where one is needing to work either cross-generationally with people of different ages in the same room or uh, with a couple and their own distinctive um, ways of relating, uh, partly based on gender, partly based in in same-sex relationships on maybe the less than full social acceptance of the relationship within which a loss has occurred. In all of these ways, that's where clinical skills and competencies come to into focus really to right, right. say, you know, what does this person need now and what are they ready for now? And what role can I take in helping them move one step closer to identifying those needs, naming and claiming them, and then meeting them in this moment with me and beyond. Dr. Niemeyer, that's an excellent um, summation. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I've, I've interviewed you so many times over the years, and I, I, I always want more. I always want <laughs> want to hear more from you. Uh, so, Morgan, thank you so much for participating with us in this interview. And and Dr. Niemeyer, oh golly, what can I say? <laughs> well. You know, in, I, I hope it is appropriate for me to just add one thing, and that is that Please. as valuable as um, the good training that you provide in On Good Authority is for practicing therapists, um, it's also helpful to complement it with uh, with other sources, of course. And most mm-hmm. particularly when our clients come to us saying, where can we turn for some additional advice and perspectives? and there are a number of um, online communities and websites around the topic of suicide bereavement. Of course, one can simply Google that and come up with many. But um, one would be the AFSP site, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which has a special arm that focuses on suicide loss with many resources and readings oriented to the users themselves as well as for professionals. Um, there are other general grief sites like one that is called Open to Hope, which provide additional resources of direct relevance to those who deal with tragic bereavement. Um, or aftertalk.com, aftertalk.com, where I have which an Ask Dr. Niemeyer yeah. column. And yeah, people can take a look at that as well. Many of the questions and answers are about very tragic losses, and often suicide losses. Uh, questions directly from the users, and I try to give some response, brief, focused, um, mm-hmm. compassionate, and practical. So those are among the the large, uh, uh, you know, set of resources available. Another is called Alliance for Hope, and that is a, a site 
distinctively for suicide survivors. They even offer a single uh, counseling session um, by Skype or phone at no cost. So there are lots of resources that people can tap into, even if they don't live in the southern third of Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> and that can often usefully supplement our work as therapists directly with them. One thing that you Thank might you. find uh, super interesting would be to look at the work of George Bonanno, and that's okay. B-O-N-A-N-N-O. And he has a, a book that is um, uh, a popular press book, so it's very readable, called The Other Side of Loss. Okay, that's great. George Bonanno. And okay. he is he's the major uh, resilience researcher in the area of bereavement. Ah. Specifically, he did a, a project called the Clock Study, along with Camille Workman and others. And so that's the changing lives of older couples. What he did is he recruited people of about our age um, who were living with a, a spouse, um, one or the other uh, spouse needed to be above the age of 65. They followed them for a period of eight years, and they simply watched as time took its toll. And where these, maybe they had 1,500 couples in the study in Michigan. And then across time, of course, through natural and unnatural causes, people would die. And then it would convert into being a bereavement study. Um, of the surviving spouse. And what they did is establish that the most common path really through the bereavement was one marked by resilience where people would end up doing quite well. They would grieve adaptively. Uh, sometimes their level of life disruption was remarkably uh, brief. Um, that isn't to say they didn't continue to mourn and feel sadness about the loss. Um, but they were able to function. Uh, their life still had meaning. They stayed connected in relationships. That was really the most common pattern. There were other patterns marked by kind of chronic depression or by a kind of uh, reactive uh, uh, sort of uh, brokenness, uh, kind of chronic grief trajectory. Previously, they'd been not doing well, but now they're kind of stuck in something they can't get out of. Um, but those would typically describe only 10 or 20% of the overall population. So the basic news was good news. And what uh, George has done is he's tried to look at the kind of anatomy of resilience uh, in bereavement um, in studies like that one. And of course, you can read the scientific studies too, just looking up his name. You'd find lots of them, sure, including in the sure. American Psychologist. Dr. Niemeyer, thank you so very much for this excellent interview. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always good to talk to fellow clinicians like yourselves. Um, Morgan, I appreciate the work that you're doing, as well as the work that Barbara's doing, and I, I wish you well in that, uh, that vital practice. That was Robert Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Stay tuned for news about our forthcoming podcasts. I hope you'll join me again. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. 
I need to say here that as always, the views of our speakers are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of On Good Authority. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander, thanking you for listening. Yeah.